On this episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we're going to be giving a Q3 update for Theta Engine as well as wrapping up season two. Before going on as usual, I'm not a financial advisor, so everything on this podcast is for informational purposes only and not to be construed as investment advice. Now, if you guys have been following the trade logs and the you know updated open positions at the Theta Engine page, um, obviously you can tell very clearly what's been going on this quarter. Um, but as usual, we do want to just kind of quick review, step through what happened, and give some of my thoughts. And uh, so last quarter, uh, which was end of June, we were just coming off of a um, looks like about seven stops here. We had a couple of profit takes, and you can see that. Uh, all the way from July through August, um, about mid-August, things were looking very good. I think there was like 30 or 40 some odd profit takes. Uh, if you look at the risk graph, uh, we had made it back up, you know, a more than halfway through uh, up to the break-even point. And so I think at the time, at the rate that things were going, um, the possibility of breaking even was around end of October. And of course, as we know, the market had another sell-off that started, you know, it peaked around um, sometime in early September, I think, and it started going down. And of course, had a, a big drop. I think it was almost like, uh, let's pull up a chart of SPX here. Let's pull it back to six months. So it peaked around, actually, it peaked around mid-August, um, went down, had a bit of a pop. That was in mid-September, which is why I was thinking mid-September, but then ultimately went back down. So from that last peak in mid-August, you know, the market's down 16%. Right? This is from August 17th through September 30th. And um, as you can see from the log, obviously, we had a number of stops. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 stops as of this recording. Today is October 3rd, 2022. And um, you can see from the graph that we are back to, I think, a little bit below the last low. So right now we're sitting at a loss of 57 credit multiples. The last drop um, in the middle of last quarter was around 50. And then there was a little bottom at 52. So right now at 57. And I think I calculated, you know, again, the kind of hypothetical break even, you know, if everything is a profit take from this point forth, not saying that's going to happen, but just as a way to gauge kind of the progress, um, I think it puts around February of next year, mid to late February. So obviously, at this point, it looks like this is going to be one of those years, which the data engine strategy is negative, which honestly is fine, right? Because if we looked at even the long term back test, which is 2005 to 2020, I think it was something like one out of four years um, was going to be negative. And that's just kind of the nature of the strategy because this, again, is, you know, by definition, delta positive, And it's going to track in terms of the correlation with the market, right? Because the underlying is SPY, SPX. So the market's not doing well. The strategy is not going to do well. And obviously, right now, this market is down year to date, you know, 25%. So, yeah, I, I think no matter what you kind of expect um there's really nothing to be said about you know <laughs> there's going to be a 25 30 percent down market this strategy is going to be negative right but again if you have gone through and if you've been following up to this point you kind of know that the idea behind theta engine is just a way to um 
you know, it's just a vehicle to harness theta, but doing it in a way that is going to manage your risk better than simple buy and hold. So the idea is you're going to get that beta exposure, but you're not going to have an all out, you know, just free fall in terms of buying holding where you have no stop and you don't plan to get out and you're just buying a share and hang on for dear life. Now, how much of a drawdown are you going to have, right? And I've said this before. If you look at all the studies, you know, and you look at the live results this year and people have asked, for example, how much can I make trading this, right? And that's really not the right question to ask. Really is how much can I make with respect to how much I and willing to or expect to lose, right? And I'm talking about kind of a return to drawdown ratio or long-term CAGR to max drawdown. Now, obviously, this is kind of idealized because what you're trying to do, your goals, it may change. So you may change the sizing, but that's why I set up the studies, um, the back test the way I did, right? As there's a user input where you can basically put in how much you target, right? The target return and look at the graph and look at the expected max drawdowns. And I think what I'm gonna do um, when I get a chance, cause obviously at the, the page, the trading page, there's a back test going from, you know, again, from 2005 to 2020, but I now have run this, you know, I, I've run this strategy in some way, shape or form for a number of years now. Remember starting with 45 DTE, then 45 plus when I started extending it and ultimately now to the current iteration, which is the 90 DTE theta engine. But I've run it in this form at least since I think the middle or you know third quarter of last year and of course all of this year. So what I'm going to do is take the logs and make sort of a kind of a similar study, like a longitudinal study like you guys are used to, but using the actual live trade logs and then normalizing all of the trade sizes so that you can do like a what if. Like, hey, if I were trading it and this time using live fills, as opposed to back test, right? If I were trading this strategy at a certain target, um, what would have been the equity curve kind of, um, I, I wanna focus more on the amplitude, right? Again, obviously the bigger you size, the more you can make and the more you stand to lose. But again, it's looking at the uh, return to drawdown ratio. And I know right now, I haven't set it up yet. And you can even run like a back test and optional mega or whatever, but this drawdown now, and depending relative to your sizing, the drawdown this year is even less than what the market would have had. So for example, I think I said something up where if you targeted like 13 or whatever, 14, 15% CAGR to kind of match the market in the last few years, and you target that same size, you can hit that same CAGR, but the drawdown this year would have been less. Um, but again, I don't want to speculate. I'll just kind of put that study up at some point. Of course, like I said, you can always run that study in optional mega and kind of look at it. Now that brings us to kind of the reason why I'm calling this the end or the wrap for season two. And I wanted to talk about a perspective shift that I have been having for a while now. And it was kind of incidental. And this kind of started off um, this year when interest rates started going up. And the reason it came about was because I noticed that interactive brokers started paying interest on the cash reserve, right? Because um, options are kind of a margin-based strategy, so you don't necessarily have to use all of your cash. So you may have idle, idle cash, and, right? And you know, for the last few years, when interest rates just kept going down, they were near zero. Essentially, 
I think sometimes people thought about options as um, you're supposed to be very conservative with your margin usage, right? Because you don't want a size too big and blow up. But then people talk about, well, I have all this capital sitting there and it seems like a waste right now. I want to trade more, which is not really the right way to go about it. Because remember, the fact that you can be very capital efficient and the fact that let's say selling a naked put on you know some stock with a hundred thousand notional only uses ten thousand twenty thousand buying power that in and of itself is making use of all of your capital because you have the notional size but you should, the fact that the broker doesn't hold the full notional value as as margin right that that's the capital efficiency but you're leveraged right so thinking i have to use all my buying power or capital or it's a waste Again, that's just not the right way to go about it. But incidentally, because now interest rates have been going up, you know, we started getting interest on the cash. And that was kind of like an interesting moment because I was like, wow, I'm like getting, you know, that's, you know, supposedly risk free, right? Because the, the cash is just sitting there and you're getting paid right now. It, it wasn't a lot at first. Right. But then, you know, the, the Fed kept raising rates and and now we have some of the cash and T-bills. And you know, we do the six month T bill ladder, for example. And, and so I started looking at fixed income, you know, and now that's at you know, 3.5, high threes, 3.8%. And it's like just adding another return stream. And what got me, you know, what changed my thinking was wow, so if, and obviously we don't know how long this environment will last, but let's just say it does, right? Let's just say perpetually you're going to get, you know, three or 4% or 5% on, on cash or cash equivalents, right? And this is just added on to whatever return you have. And so what got me thinking was like, you don't have to, and I've said this before, but you can look into alternative ways to generate return that isn't necessarily only from one strategy. And what got me thinking was with the way the market has gone this year, right? And you know how traditionally when people talk about diversification, right? There was kind of the whole 60-40 example, 60 stocks, 40 bonds. But this year, um, that hasn't done well, right? Because stocks and bonds have gone down. So uh, people in the financial space are looking for, you know, something to get returns. Uh, the idea of uh, commodity trend advisors that also do trend following and these alternative asset classes. And when I talk about trend following, you can do this yourself, right? You can look at momentum and do, you know, look at the, the crossovers and kind of rebalance your portfolio with different asset classes. You can have equities or ETFs that track commodities or different sectors or energy or whatever. You can do this, but obviously there is essentially funds, you know, other products, ETFs um, or mutual funds that basically either track this space or they themselves have like a mix of different actively managed strategies that essentially follow this kind of approach, right? And this has typically been... Um, Accept that as a non-correlated strategy, but it kind of fell out of vogue because the last decade stocks were doing so well, like you could just buy and hold and get like 15 to 20% a year. So everything that wasn't 15 to 20% a year basically fell out of favor because they were seen as quote unquote underperforming. But the idea now that this, you know, next few years with all this stuff going on in the environment and the way the Fed's raising rates, like stocks may not be kind of the easy passive 10 15 20 percent a year that it has been right so if you want to look into diversifying it's not just so much trying different strategies in the same space but i've really thought about combining different 
strategies and return streams in different spaces. And I've kind of alluded to that. So, you know, we have been doing options. Right? Theta Engine was kind of a quote unquote income strategy. Although, you know, take that with a grain of salt because the income is inconsistent, right? I, even if you believe long term there's expectancy, as we can see, you can't expect it all to come in, you know, consistently, right? Not every year is going to be a winner, clearly. But if you combine that with, you know, fixed income, right? Either just, you know, doing a T-bill ladder or again, even that there's um, ETFs or other products that can basically manage that for you or look into alternative strategies or products that, you know, do trend following or if you even have your own other option strategies. And the point I'm trying to make here is now you don't have to have any one piece be all you do. Right. Rather than just saying, hey, I wanted to use options to make 15 or 20 percent. Right. If you have kind of three or four different things going on, you can target three or four or five percent for each of those pieces. And if you have three or four pieces, you know, that's 15, 20 percent that you can get. And if those four, you know, streams of income or PL are uncorrelated or basically are diversified and not correlated with each other, that's going to make the overall portfolio a lot more conservative and a lot more um, less prone to large drawdowns. And so one more shift. And I say this is a shift in mindset, although to be clear, I've kind of been doing this all along. And what I'm talking about is in the longitudinal studies, for example, for Theta Engine, right? I made it where you can target whatever return you want as an illustration of the fact that larger gains, larger losses, but the risk to reward ratio was good, right? The risk suggest return is good with a strategy like Theta Engine. But I've never actually run it at that large of an allocation. So I can say that, you know, for the last year or so, it's been running at about a less than a 5% return target. And so I'm not saying that everyone has to run it small or you should run it big, or I'm not even telling you how big you should run it. But the fact that you can kind of run this small and have it as a piece of an overall, uh, you know, an overall portfolio where we have other things going on, that's kind of the the focus or the approach I'm thinking about doing. And like I said, I've had this kind of idea in my head, you know, ever since kind of the volatility started and interest rates started going up. But something that kind of really solidified this is I had a conversation with Chris A from you know, Twitter. And if you guys follow the FinTwit space or the VolTwit space, uh, you'll be familiar with Chris A. If not, definitely worth a follow. Um, I'm going to put his um, Twitter handle in the show notes because <laughs> I don't want to butcher his last name. And he said, just go by Chris A. Um, but, you know, really knowledgeable guy, super generous for this time. And we had a chat, uh, you know, just about uh, what I've been doing. And he pointed something out that I kind of knew about, but but made a lot of sense. And it's the idea that for any strategy, you really have to be cognizant of like how uh, the unknown unknowns or the risk that you think um, that that may be there that you may not know about. And for something like Data Engine specifically, right, all of the back tests and that whole idea of expectancy hacking, credit targeting, the success of the strategy is essentially based on the risk reward ratio being controllable, right, via stops. And so the ability to exit at a defined threshold, that essentially underpins the success of the entire strategy. Now, 
through the back testing, obviously, it looked okay, right? But again, back testing is that. It's, it, it's, you can never expect it to be exact to live, right? But then, you know, I've traded this through COVID, right? 2020 with the circuit breakers and all that, the crazy gaps. So I have live trades that show, you know, even with extreme stress, um, SPY, SPX is liquid. And, you know, the worst stopouts that got gapped out were, you know, three points some multiple, right? Nothing crazy. So that's why I had a lot of confidence in trading this, right, with the stops and all. Because people always talk about hard stops not working. I've talked about trading liquid product and trading 90 DTE. Those are all things that function to keep you in an instrument that's liquid. But even then, right, and again, I have um, with the Theta engine, I always trade with the bomb shelter. So just in case of some kind of really crazy black swan, 20% gap, unprecedented kind of, you know, event, even then, Right. All of that, you just never know. And so one thing that he mentioned was like in your back test or your studies, you take kind of the whatever the worst situation is and multiply by 5x. Right. And size your strategy based on that, you know, because like at kind of the professional level or institutional level, they're always focusing on kind of the worst case. It doesn't matter how good the strategy looks or, you know, um, how much it makes or how good it looks, you know, compared to other strategies, you always have to be cognizant of the unknown unknowns and what kind of, what is kind of the worst case scenario. And so his advice was basically just like, if you want to do something like this, you have to really be aware of the fact that, you know, selling options, you're selling a convex instrument, right? And so there is always a possibility of that large loss. And so running a strategy like this, you it's, it's kind of going to be naturally capacity constrained in terms of how much you can realistically size it if you want to be serious about having this kind of strategy in your book. And so the interesting thing is that, again, the, re the reason I mentioned this is this really aligns with what I had been kind of incidentally, incidentally doing already. So again, big shout out to Chris A., um, I'm going to put his Twitter handle in uh, the show notes. Uh, definitely check out. Uh, he writes a weekly newsletter as well uh, called Moon Tower. And so give him a follow. Check out uh, his newsletter on Substack. But all credit to Chris A for, you know, really being generous and taking some time to chat with me. So the idea is, again, I, I had incidentally already been sizing Theta Engine at a pretty small target return to begin with. Because, again, it was a piece of my overall portfolio, right? But now to really um, have that be the main idea that like this doesn't have to be the everything, right? And I now view this more as, you know, when I say this data engine, more as a beta alternative, right? Back in episode 15 of uh, Trade Busters, I had kind of mentioned the approach of stacking it on top of uh, just an idea, stacking on top of the market, right? So buy and hold index funds or SPY, and stacking Theta Engine at a small allocation just to kind of enhance the return a bit. Now, that approach can still work, right? If you believe in long-term buy and hold, which I don't necessarily do anymore, but if, if that's an approach you still want to have, right, and you want to stack a little bit of extra return on top of it, long-term it should still play out, right? The goal was like, hey, the market's average 10, you can average 12 or average 13, right? But <laughs> the trade-off is, you know, when markets on a good year, markets up 15, you're up 18, great. Markets up 20, you're up 23, great, 
right? But something like this, market's down 25 and data engine's down whatever, you know, you could be down a little bit more or even best case, market's down, no, best case, if market's down 25 and you're down less, 23, well, you're still doing down 23. And what I'm trying to point out is you're still going to have a lot of volatility, which if that's within your risk tolerance and you think you have a long-term horizon, that may be okay, right? Uh, stacking this as an extra return on top of the beta. So the shift that I've had now is really, if you want to think about just not having buy and hold, because for one, it's just really volatile, right? And there's not really any strategy to it per se. You're just buy and holding and not doing anything. Having data engine be kind of the beta alternative, using data engine in lieu of the market, as opposed to beta mar uh, data engine in addition to the market, right? So again, really sizing it down and having that. So if you, because if you believe in long-term positive drift and you believe the market's going to go up, right? Uh, and, and you want that beta, you don't have to have them together, right? So if data engine is kind of the beta alternative, that can be potentially a piece of a portfolio that has the correlation and tracks the market. And then again, like I said, combining kind of different approaches, fixed income, um, trend following or other option strategies or, or whatever else, right? And the idea is that because options are marginable and they're, sorry, options use margin and different underlyings, different, you know, mutual funds or ETFs, depends on your broker, but even stock, they're marginable. And again, you don't have to have an all cash account. You can have other, um, other underlyings or other assets in your portfolio. And the option strategy can basically be an overlay on top of that. And so the shift for me and what I hopefully can get into and maybe share some more ideas once they kind of uh, formalize a bit, you know, for next season is this idea of introducing you guys just to other ways, other ideas of portfolio construction and really using options in tandem in parallel with other asset classes and strategies and underlyings as opposed to only focusing on options. And hopefully this will come to fruition, but, you know, I would like to maybe get experts in different spaces and different domains and to kind of talk about their expertise uh, and as a way for you guys to get introduced to other topics and other areas so that if you want to do it yourself, you can, or if there's products. And, and the other thing that really is cool now is there's just a lot of products available to individual retail traders now that basically give you exposures to these different asset classes and different strategies. And if you understand them, then you yourself can kind of pick and choose and craft some kind of portfolio together and then run your option strategies on top of that, right? So I guess the idea is to like, you know, retail can think like an allocator or think like a hedge fund manager, you know, it's just thinking more from the portfolio level and think about portfolio construction as opposed to just focusing on a strategy and trying to make that do everything for you so anyways that's the big idea um that's what's been going on the last few months and that's why i thought this was a nice place to kind of wrap up season two and again hopefully moving forward i i am able to kind of get my thoughts together and do a little more due diligence and kind of learn myself a little bit more because i'm still learning as well and um like i said that's kind of what the plan is um hopefully for next season we'll have something interesting for you guys to um, to learn as well. So let's leave it there for now. As always, if you guys enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit my trading page at www.thetradebusters.com 
where you'll find all the strategy mechanics, trade logs, as well as various essays I've written and other podcasts I recommend. Finally, you can follow me on Twitter at The Trade Buster. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you guys next time.